Good morning and welcome to RHC. It's good to be with you this morning. How are you all doing? All right. Great looking group this morning. Do me a favor, guys, and keep your Bibles on John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. This will be our text for this morning. I'll begin by saying the Apostle John made really big and bold doctrinal statements about Christ in the opening lines of his gospel. He did this because he wants his audience to not only know who Christ is, but to receive Him and believe in Him as Lord and Savior. You remember a couple of weeks ago I told you about the twofold purpose of the Gospel of John. Number one, it's about evangelism. Uh, that would be presenting Christ so that people might believe in Him. And number two, it's apologetics. That has to do with defending the truth claims of Christ. Two Sundays ago, we looked at the deity of Christ. And then last Sunday, we looked at the life and light of Christ. Christ is the source of all physical and spiritual life. He is the light of the world who came to reveal the Father and to reveal the Father's plan of salvation. In verses 14 through 18, our text, John describes how Christ came to us, that's the incarnation, along with several other important truths. Let's begin with verse 14. Verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, let's begin to break this wonderful, wonderful verse down. Let's begin with the verse phrase that says, And the Word became flesh. This is the most concise statement of the incarnation in Scripture. These four words express the reality that in the incarnation, God took upon Himself flesh and humanity. The eternal one stepped into time. You know, God is eternal. He has never existed within time or space. He doesn't have to. He transcends all of those things. And yet, when He took upon flesh, He stepped into time, became subjected to time. Very interesting. I also like to think of it like this. The Creator entered His creation. This is not to say that God has not existed within His creation, he has to a degree, right? He is, uh, moves around in His creation. He does things in His creation. He maintains His creation. But what we see in the incarnation is Him entering His creation in a unique, unprecedented way. I like to think of it, too, as the infinite. That is what God is. He is infinite. He transcends all things. He has no limitations. But here in the incarnation, He becomes finite. We are finite beings. We have limitations. God, the eternal God, has no limitations. But when the Word became flesh, limitations were applied, all the limitations of the flesh. God had revealed Himself through creation, through conscience, through signs and wonders, that's miracles and things, and through the Old Testament. That's what we talked about last week. Here we see the greatest revelation of Himself through the Word, Jesus Christ becoming flesh. This is the moment where God became Emmanuel, God with us. That's what Emmanuel means, God with us. It isn't the name of some Frenchman who makes wine or something like that, just in case you get confused. It means God with us. Next phrase, became flesh. It does not carry a negative moral connotation as it does in other places. In Scripture, flesh is usually or often associated uh, with our natural inclinations, you know, the desires of our flesh, 
the desires that we have for sinful things. It doesn't mean that here. Here it simply points to the fact that Christ became fully man. And when He became flesh, He did not cease being the eternal Word. There is no reduction or loss of His deity here as He became flesh. He has always been God and never can cease to be God. But He did take on flesh. So don't think of it as a reduction. Think of it as an addition, if you want. And what we're referring to here is the hypostatic union. Jesus Christ, one person, fully God and fully man. His two natures, human and divine, are inseparable. This is why we must believe that He is fully God and fully man. If we believe that He is one or the other, we are separating who He is. We are dividing who He is, and we cannot do that. He will forever be the God-man, fully God and fully human, two distinct natures in one person. And that fact kind of blows my mind because what it means is when we meet Christ face to face, either at His rapture when He comes or when we step out of this life and into our eternal state, we are going to meet Christ face to face and we are going to see a man with a literal body. We must understand that it is a glorified body, but He has a body nonetheless, and the scars of His crucifixion remain. So when you step in front of Christ for the first time in that way, you are going to see the God-man. You are going to see a flesh and blood person. How incredible is that? You must also understand that His divinity and humanity are not mixed in any way but are united without loss of separate identity. Try to get your mind around that. The fact that He is fully God and fully man is really difficult for me to get my finite mind around. But the fact that those two natures exist within Him, but apart from each other, is, just amplifies the difficulty for me to understand that. That's incredible. Listen to what Cyril of Alexandria wrote in the mid-5th century. And I believe he was defending the the, uh, humanity of Christ here because that doctrine was under attack during his day. He says, We do not assert that there was any change in the nature of the Word when it became flesh or that it was transformed into an entire man consisting of soul and body. But we say that the Word, in a manner indescribable and inconceivable, United personally to himself, flesh, animated with a reasonable soul, and thus became man and was called the Son of Man. He says, The two natures which were brought together to form a true unity were different, but out of both is one Christ and one Son. Well, what a great way to describe the hypostatic union, fully God and fully man. Now, many have found the incarnation so utterly beyond human reason, they reject it. They reject it. In John's day, it was the heretical group known as the Docetists. They believed that all physical matter is evil, which means that Christ could not have taken on flesh. You know, if Christ had taken on a a fleshly body, as Scripture teaches, then Christ would have been evil because all physical matter is evil. That's what they thought. So they taught that his body was either a phantom, an apparition, or that his spirit simply descended upon the mere man Jesus at his baptism and then left at his crucifixion. It's crazy. 
The Docetists paved the way for Gnosticism, a second and third century heresy. The Gnostics claimed to have a secret knowledge about Christ, and if you wanted to possess it, you had to convert to Gnosticism. You couldn't just be a Christian. You had to get rid of that. You had to become Gnostic. The secret knowledge they claimed to possess was nothing more than a hybrid form of docetism and denial of the humanity of Christ. When John, the apostle, our author, was in Ephesus, he went toe-to-toe with a docetist named Serenthus. The early church historian Eusebius recorded an encounter between them. Listen to what he wrote in one of his historical books. John the Apostle once entered a bath to wash, but ascertaining Serenthus was within, he leaped out of that place and fled from the door, not enduring to enter under the same roof with him, and exhorted those with him to do the same, saying, Let us flee, lest the bath fall in, as long as Serenthus, that enemy of truth, is within." (laughs) Isn't that incredible that Eusebius records this experience where John the Apostle was unwilling to enter the same restroom, the same bathhouse with Serenthus in it because he was afraid the roof would fall in, that God would strike Serenthus with a lightning bolt for denying and teaching others to deny the humanity of Christ. That is incredible. John, John the Apostle literally could not stand Serenthus because of the apostate teachings that he taught. He could not stand that heresy, and he didn't care for those who proclaimed it, because it is an absolute assault on the gospel and on the person of Jesus. Listen to what John wrote in 1 John 4, 1 through 3. And I'd just like to note quickly that I'm not sure if we realize what we're actually looking at when we read Scripture at times. This is an actual apologetic for the humanity of Christ. This is a defense. What John wrote here is a defense of the humanity of Christ against Serenthus and against the Docetists. Listen to what he wrote. He says, Dear friends, do not believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. You must test them to see if the Spirit they have comes from God. For there are many false prophets in the world. This is how we know if they have the Spirit of God. If a person claiming to be a prophet acknowledges that Jesus Christ came in a real body, if that person claims to be a prophet and if they affirm the humanity of Christ, he says that person has the Spirit of God. But if someone claims to be a prophet and does not acknowledge the truth, the whole truth about Jesus, that person is not from God. So John teaches his audience, those who were reading or hearing that letter, First John, he was teaching them how to sniff out a false prophet. And the false prophet in that day, at that particular time, at that place, was a docetist. The docetist who were attacking and teaching against the humanity of Christ. How do you know if they are a docetist? How do you know if they are a false prophet? They deny. No matter who they say they are, they deny the humanity of Christ. Let's look at the next phrase, and dwelt among us. The original Greek verb behind the word dwelt means to live in a tent. How many of you in this room are campers? Oh, so we've got a few of you that have put your hands up. How many of you would prefer to stay in a hotel room? 
more of you would rather stay in a hotel room. You're like my wife. She doesn't like the dirt and the bugs and all of that. I'm okay with those things. I was a Boy Scout in an early age. I like to shoot guns and to fish. I don't mind dirt uh, and whatever. Some of you are like that in that camp, literally, and some of you are not. You like hotel. Don't get me wrong. I like hotel and hot showers and all that too. But here we get the idea of camping and tenting. Dwelt among us literally means to tent with his people, to camp out, to be with them, to exist with them, to live among them, to tent. The fact is, God has always tented with his people. In the garden, we see him walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. His presence was there in the garden. He was tenting with them. In the wilderness, his glorious presence could be found in the tabernacle, which was a big, glorious tent. It was that place of worship during the wilderness era and beyond. And then later in Jerusalem at the temple, that is God's dwelling place, a big tent constructed of stone and precious, precious gems. God even revealed His presence, the fact that He was among His people through some pre-incarnate appearances of Christ. That would be an appearance of Christ that took place before He stepped out of glory and became a man before the incarnation. You remember the fourth man in the fiery furnace in Daniel 3. We read that several months ago. We studied that glorious passage. You know, we saw the fourth man who is Christ in the fiery furnace, preserving and protecting Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. That is an example of God being there with His people, tenting with His people, even during the Babylonian exile. But here in our text, we see God tenting with his people in the most extraordinary way, in flesh. And today, and over the last couple of thousand years, he has pitched his tent in the hearts of his people as he indwells us through the Holy Spirit. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, believers are the temple of God. It's like we're the tent of God, the abode of God, the uh, place that God um, inhabits on the earth right now. It is inside of us, in our hearts, through the Holy Spirit. Amazing that God tents inside of us. In the future, God will tent with His redeemed and glorified people in the new heaven and new earth. Revelation 21, 3-4 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. So there in Revelation 21, we get the idea of God once again tenting among His people. But this time, it's permanent because the new heaven and new earth have to do with the eternal kingdom. Pretty amazing. And think about this. The Word, when it became flesh, when Christ became flesh, He dwelt among us. How long? For 33 years, right? And within that period of time, Christ experienced the things people experienced. He ate, he got tired, he slept, he laughed, he wept. Uh, you remember he cried uh, when he learned of his very good friend Lazarus who died. He wept over Jerusalem too, you know, and Jerusalem had rejected him. He went to school. You think about that, that Jesus... Christ went to school. He, he learned things in school as school children learn. He traveled with his family, right? We see in the gospel him going with his family into Jerusalem for the various feasts and things. 
He did something else that's extraordinary that people do, most of us at least. He got a job. He worked a job. He was a carpenter, maybe a journey-level carpenter, but he was a carpenter in his father Joseph's carpentry shop, making doors, making fences, building furniture, whatever it was that he was doing. Now, I've often thought about this. Couldn't he have just come down and taken care of the atonement over a weekend and spared himself all of that people stuff and living? Couldn't he have done that? Couldn't he have taken care of what we actually need from him in 33 hours rather than in 33 years? Sure, he could have. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. But that was not the plan. The author of Hebrews tells us why he took the long route, if you want to call it that. Um, Chapter 2, verse 17 of Hebrews says, He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Okay, so Christ was made like his brothers in every respect at the incarnation, with the exception that he did not possess a sinful nature like we do. But he was fully man in every other capacity. He was a perfect man because he, doesn't have the, he didn't have the sin nature. He was made like us in every respect. But here, the translation has to do with he experienced everything that his brothers experienced. He experienced all that a person experiences. And why is that? Well, the author continues. He says, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So the idea here is that he became a man and spent 33 years on earth to experience what men experience, heartache, temptation, letdown, joy, meals, holidays, school, all of the things that we experience, he experienced so that he might become merciful and faithful toward us. He felt and experienced what we experienced so that he could empathize with us. Now, that's not to attack the um, omniscience of God, which means all knowledge. God does know all things. He doesn't have to go through all things that we go through to be able to empathize with us. He understands us better than we understand ourselves. But when God became flesh, in the flesh He had to experience those things to obtain that empathy and those experiences so that He could best minister to us. Pretty amazing. I like what John Gill wrote. Christ could not be a high priest, offer for sin, and make intercession unless he was man. Nor could he be a merciful and compassionate one, sympathize with his people in their sorrows, temptations, and sufferings, unless he was like them in these, unless he experienced those things, he says. Nor would he be a faithful, that is, a true and lawful one. He's talking about high priest. Because every high priest is taken from among men. So the reason why Christ did not take the short route and do things in 33 hours, took the long route, 33 years, is so that he could experience everything that we experience with the exception of indulgence and sin, so that he could be compassionate to us, understand us at a human level as a human being, and best empathize with us and be the best high priest that he could be, not to mention the fact that he could not even be our high priest unless he became a man, because being a man is requisite to that office. How wonderful is that to know that he went, he goes through, he went through what we go through. When you're sad, he knows what that is like. When you're tempted, he knows what that is like. When you're hungry, he knows what that is like, and he can empathize with us. That is so glorious and encouraging. Next phrase, 
and we have seen His glory. Jesus manifested God's divine glory during His earthly life. I would add that His glory was shrouded by His flesh to a great degree. He didn't go around always exhibiting the divine glory, but there is one particular instance where we see Him do this, and it would be at the transfiguration where Jesus, Peter, James, and John went up on the top of a mountain and Christ, Jesus Christ was transfigured before them where his face shone like the sun and his garments became white as light. That was a revelation of his glory, of his divinity. And so we see him manifesting God's divine glory in that moment, proving that he is divine. Glory, the next phrase, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Jesus manifested the same essential glory as the Father because as God, they possess the same nature. In other versions of the Bible, the NASB, the phrase, the only Son from the Father, is translated only begotten. The same phrase is used in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. What does it mean that Christ is the only Son from the Father, or as the NASB puts it, the only begotten Son? Well, false teachers like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons will tell you that it means that Christ was created by God and does not possess divinity nor is He eternal. They think that only begotten means that He is created and that is the beginning of His existence and that His existence doesn't transcend or go beyond that moment, that He did not exist before that. What they fail to understand is that the term does not refer to His origin. It doesn't refer to where He is from. It is used to describe his uniqueness, the fact that he is one of a kind. MacArthur put it like this, the term only begotten distinguishes Christ as the unique son of God from believers who are God's sons in a different sense. Now think of it like this, we are adopted sons and daughters, right? We are brought into the family of God. But Christ is begotten. He is unique. We came into the family of God by grace through faith. Christ has always been in fellowship with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. For He is the eternal Word, the eternal second member of the Holy Trinity. So when you see only begotten, don't think He is the only created or that is the point that He was created, think of His uniqueness as the only one of His kind. When the Word became flesh, He did not become a Son of God, as in Greek mythology. You know, Greek mythology would teach that Zeus would step out of heaven and come down and he would lay with some earthly woman, and then that woman would give birth to a son, and that son would be a demigod. He would be like half God and half man. Well, that is not at all what happened with Jesus Christ. He existed beforehand, and He came and took upon Himself flesh. So we don't want to think of Greek or Roman mythology. And this is an argument that atheists have been using for a long time against the faith. They say, well, look, Christianity just borrowed from Greek mythology or some other mythology. Well, no, no, no. 
only begotten and him becoming flesh doesn't have anything to do with Greek mythology. It is completely outside of that, transcends that. It is unique. Christ has always been the Son of God. He has always owned that unique title, okay? He has always been known as that, even though there was a moment where he became flesh, where it was actualized on our side, down on earth, but he has always been Emmanuel. He has always been the Son of God. He has always been the Word. He has always been who he is, and he has always bore those titles. I said this two weeks ago, this warning, if we deny the deity of Christ, we deny Christ and have no part in his finished work. I'll add a line to it. If we also deny the humanity of Christ, we deny Christ and have no part in his finished work. We cannot deny his deity and we cannot deny his humanity. We must accept what the Bible clearly teaches about him. Christ is fully God and fully man. And I will add that every true believer, although they may not understand it completely or in a way that they really want to, because this is difficult stuff to understand, the true believer still accepts and affirms these truths, believes this reality, and will tell others about it. Next phrase, full of grace and truth. Christ was and is the full expression of God's grace. And he was and is the full expression of God's truth. Grace and truth right here, as John means it, pertain to salvation, right? Grace and truth are doctrines associated right here in this text with salvation. A person is saved by grace the moment they accept and believe the truth about Christ. There is no salvation grace except to those who believe the truth of the gospel message. In other words, the saving grace of God is manifest in a person and represented when that person believes, when they accept the truth. You cannot be saved by God's grace and reject the truth. And those who accept and believe the truth of Christ evident God's saving grace on their life. I like how 2 Thessalonians 2.10 puts it. Those who prefer wickedness and do not accept and love the truth which saves shall perish. So those who do not love the truth about who Jesus Christ is, they're going to perish. If they don't like the fact that He's deity, but they like the fact that He's humanity, they will perish. If they like the fact that He is humanity and reject the deity, they will perish. We must accept all the truth about Jesus Christ. MacArthur put it like this, a vague belief in God apart from the truth about Christ will not result in salvation. It won't result in it. As Jesus himself warned, unless you believe that I am he, and when he says he, I am the Messiah, I am the God-man, I am the Son of God, he says, unless you believe that about me, unless you believe in the totality of who I am and what I say about myself and what the Father says about me, you will die in your sins. You will die in your sins. And he says, those who think they are worshiping God but are ignorant of or reject the fullness of the New Testament teaching about Christ are deceived because, he quotes a verse here, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Kind of astonished at how people think they can bypass 
Christ to get to the Father. You cannot bypass Christ. And guess what else you can't do? You can't accept a partial Christ. You have to have the full God, full man Christ in order to come to the Father, to know the Father, to be saved. Let's move to verse 15. This is a parenthetical statement. It says, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Uh, Our author, John the Apostle, again, zeroes in on one of the great witnesses to Christ, John the Baptist. Remember, the apostle's goal is to prove who Christ is, and that is why he cites witnesses like right here with John the Baptist, as well as why he points to the miracles of Christ in the following chapters. Last week, I told you that there were clusters of John the Baptist loyalists that existed into the second century. In other words, there were people who were basically believing in John the Baptist and following John the Baptist for their salvation rather than Christ, and those groups existed well after the life and ministry of Jesus Christ on earth. In verses 6 through 7, the apostle refuted these groups by showing that John the Baptist was a witness to the light and not the light himself, who is Christ. He did the same thing here in verse 15, but this time he recites part of John the Baptist's own testimony. During one of John's sermons, he told his audience that Christ was greater than he because Christ was before him. Well, if you read Luke chapter 1, verses 24 through 26, you will find that John the Baptist's mama, Elizabeth, became pregnant six months before Mary, the mother of Jesus. This means that John the Baptist was actually six months older than Jesus, that he came before Jesus. If he was six months older than Jesus, how could he say that Jesus came before him and was greater than him, greater than him or outranked him? Well, it's simple. John the Baptist understood who Jesus is. He knew that he was uh, before John the Baptist, that he existed before John the Baptist was ever born in the fact that Jesus is the eternal Word. He understood the first part of John the Apostle's statement. He understood that Jesus Christ, the Word, was with God and that Jesus Christ was God. The Word was God. He got that. He knew that. And that's why he says, not only was he before me, but he outranks me because he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. So that is John the Baptist's own testimony, which is a refutation of those who were worshiping or following him later on. Notice the phrase there in that parenthetical statement, cried out. This speaks of the bold nature of John the Baptist's preaching. He was literally fearless when he entered the pulpit. He preached repentance without apology. Literally, he preached repentance. You must repent or you will perish. You must turn from your sins. And, and then he even offered to baptize people as a representation of those sins being washed away. He preached repentance without apology. And I'll tell you what, rarely do you hear men in pulpits today in the church preaching repentance. They feel that it's, it's too ugly and it's too hard and that it's going to turn people away. Well, let me tell you something. It, there is no gospel apart from repentance. The gospel includes the doctrine of repentance. People must repent of their sin and of their self-sufficiency, trusting in themselves 
and believe in Jesus Christ as the source of their salvation alone. They must. So repentance is a, uh, an important and necessary fact in the gospel. And I'll tell you what, John the Baptist preached it without apology. He also eviscerated, like disemboweled the religious leaders when he told them that they were fruitless trees ready to be cut down and thrown into the fire. He literally told them that when they came out and pressed him on who he was and challenged his ministry. He told them, you're like a bunch of dead trees and the axe is at the root. And what do we do with dead trees? What does God do with them? He throws them into the fire where they are burned. Imagine saying that to one of the high religious leaders of our day, the Pope or somebody like that. That is exactly what he did. He absolutely rebuked the highest ranking religious leaders or at least their representatives in that day. Why? Because he knew they were hypocrites and he knew that they were only religious outwardly. He also excoriated Herod Antiochus for committing adultery. That was the current king at the day. He totally rebuked him publicly, excoriated him for committing adultery with Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Can you imagine a prophet preacher standing in his pulpit with the king of Israel, or at least that part of Israel, in his presence and pointing him out in the congregation and rebuking him for sleeping with his brother's wife? That is exactly what he did. In fact, that's what landed him in jail and ended up getting him beheaded. He, <laughs> incredible, he boldly preached the good news, the gospel. He challenged and rebuked the religious leaders. He challenged and rebuked the political leaders. He did all of that to any and to all who came out to the riverside where his ministry was taking place. I think that if John the Baptist were around today and was a pastor of a church, I believe his church would be very small. And some of you might be thinking, well, he was such a dynamic preacher, and we see that his ministry was really massive and huge during, during his day, and so wouldn't that be true of today? I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, repentance is not a popular subject. Uh, in the church today. Uh, it's not something that preachers want to talk about. Uh, sin is not something that preachers want to talk about. Why? They're so afraid of the culture. If they're not afraid of, of men and the culture and how they'll be responded to, uh, they just reject those truths plainly and don't think that they're necessary for salvation. I, mean, I don't know what the problem is. Maybe it's because leaders in the church have become enculturated and they believe the lies of political correctness and tolerance I know one thing's true, and I believe this to be true, and I don't mean to be a jerk by saying this, but I think the average Christian today has no stomach for repentance, the message of repentance or sin. I don't even think Christians want to hear about that stuff. They think it's intolerant. Like I said, we've become enculturated. And so they think that you're judging people and you're being critical of them and you're being mean-spirited. And How many times have you had somebody say something like that to you the minute that you expose some sort of sin? And maybe you do that in the most loving and kind way, but the first thing that happens is a group of Christians attack you and call you judgmental. How utterly preposterous. How ridiculous. You know what I say to every Christian that thinks the minute you mention sin or any sin at all, the minute you mention that, you know what I say to those who say you're being judgmental? I say, go back and study your Bible. You don't know what judgment means. You have no concept of what the word judgment means. Learn what it means, become educated on what Scripture teaches, and then come and, and dialogue with me. But Christians are so quick to call anyone and everyone who exposes sin or talks about sin 
judgmental. It will spin your head. And so I think that there's no stomach in our culture and no stomach in the church for the message of repentance. They don't want to talk about sin or any of those things. And that's why I think John the Baptist's church would be small. And I suspect that maybe that has been impacting our church. I am not comparing myself to John the Baptist. I'm not even on the same scale with him. He is one of the top 10 preachers of all time. He's up there with Jesus and and the Apostle Paul and Charles Spurgeon and others like that. I'm not likening myself to them. I am just saying that if you preach the truth unvarnished because you want to see people get saved and hear the whole gospel, you are not going to be popular. You are not going to be flooded with people. But if you soften the gospel and only talk about its benefits and how you can be changed and how you can experience this, that, and the other without mentioning sin, without mentioning turning from your self-righteousness and all that, you will have a huge church. You will have a Joel Osteen-esque church. And that is what is happening. And I think that's why his church, and maybe our church is small, and other churches out there that are being faithful to the word are small. It's not a bad thing for your church not to be a megachurch. It is a bad thing, however, for your church not to be missional and to be reaching people. So we should be adding to our numbers, but it's a slow, methodical process. Now, in verses 19 and on, 19 through 34, I believe, the apostle will go into much more detail about John the Baptist. He's devoted a whole section in chapter 1 to him. Again, he wants to tell everyone about what John the Baptist believed and understood and preached so that people will not turn to John the Baptist by faith. Now look at verse, before we get to any of that, we've got to finish our text. Look at verse 16. It says, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Christ is the unique channel of all God's material and spiritual blessings. On one level, this verse is a statement that all men have been recipients of God's grace. We call this common grace. You know, every, everything truly good that comes into a person's life, health, prosperity, knowledge, friendships, good times, whatever it is, comes from God to people, okay? That is an expression of God's common grace, not His saving grace. And I'll tell you what, this is true whether or not a person recognizes God as the source of such blessings. You know, whether they accept it or not, it doesn't matter. It's still an expression of God's common grace. Some like to use the word providence to describe these blessings that God bestows upon the unrighteous because they don't like to think of God's grace as common. But I think that within God, the immutable, unchanging God, God's grace can be multidimensional and have different facets. It can have a common type. Of, there's a t- common type of grace that can be there that is for all. There is the saving grace there that is for only His people. I think that it can exist. I have no problem with the term common grace. I have no problem with the term providence. There is another sense in which Christ is the source of all blessing, though. It goes beyond the common grace. You have the grace that God supplies to His people, to believers, 
which is also in Christ. He is the source of that grace, right? We would say that he is the source of God's grace to God's people. He is the wellspring of God's grace. It is from his fullness that we receive grace upon grace. When you see that phrase, grace upon grace, think of grace in a perpetual nonstop flow coming to us or grace on top of grace on top of grace on top of grace. That's the way that we should look at that. He is the wellspring of God's grace, and it's from His fullness that we keep getting the grace. God's grace flows to us through Christ and from Christ as water flows to our city from a reservoir. But there are no droughts or shortages. Isn't that good news? You can water your lawn every day and twice on Sunday. (laughs) That abundant supply will never be exhausted or diminished Grace will continually follow grace in a limitless, never-ending flow. That is God's grace to His people. And, And what are the manifestations of it? What does His grace do for us? Or what um, distinct types of grace come to us through Christ? Well, I'm thinking of providing grace. Okay, that would be the grace of provision. That flows to us in a perpetual manner from Christ. Providing grace means that our needs are taken care of, our shelter, our food, um, the things that we need for basic living and all of that. There is the providing grace that's kind of flowing to us here. There is the empowering grace that flows to us through Christ in a never-ending fashion. This is grace that empowers us for mission, for the mission of Christ, empowers us for daily living, for godly living, empowers us for ministry and for mission, even empowers us to love our spouses and loved ones and children's rightly with the agape love of God. So you've got the providing grace, you've got the empowering grace. I'd say we also have the cleansing grace. It is totally true that our sins have once and for all been cleansed by God's grace, and they are as far as the east is from the west. But there is a cleansing grace that continues to flow to us and wash over us as we confess and repent of our sin. Jesus kind of pointed to this cleansing grace when he washed his disciples' feet. Peter said, well, man, if this has to do with salvation and grace, wash my whole body. And Jesus said, your whole body doesn't need to be washed just your feet. So we get the idea that we need daily, you know, uh, moment by moment cleansing grace to be cleansed of our daily sins, the things that frustrate our fellowship with God and our friendship with others. We need that. And so we need to have our feet washed by God's cleansing grace. And it happens when we confess and repent our sin, acknowledge those things and receive God's mercies, which are fresh and new every day. And I'm also thinking about healing grace. You might say, "Well, well, healing grace, sure, but but, but I've had loved ones who got cancer and passed away and friends that were, you know, hit in a, by a car and were laid up in a hospital bed and they didn't make it. I didn't see God's healing grace there. Well, that may be true. You may not have seen God's healing grace there. God obviously had another purpose uh, for that scenario and His healing grace was not manifest in that moment. And that's difficult for us to comprehend or understand, but we must understand that God is working all things Uh, to the greater good of those who love Him and called according to His purposes, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So don't just reject the idea of healing grace there. Are you also saying that since that person didn't receive God's healing grace, that He is not now currently healing your broken spirit and heart over that scenario, over that experience? 
So you can see how his healing grace still comes to us as he heals our emotional wounds as we go through life and as we experience letdowns, as we experience tragedies, as we experience loss, the loss of loved ones and things. I think his healing grace is constantly coming to us. He is constantly healing us emotionally. When we get confused spiritually, he's healing us. And yes, he can heal physically by that healing grace as well. So those are some examples for how, for the types of grace that he sends to us in and through Jesus Christ. It's all in Christ. He is the ocean of God's grace and he flows to us. Notice how John wrote, we have all received. John is testifying to the fact that he has received the expressions of God's grace, the saving grace in these examples. He is saying we have all received it. He is saying that he has received God's grace and continues to do so. He is saying that all believers have received grace upon grace. So I think that we should be like John and we should tell others about this grace that we have received and that we continue to receive and that we should offer it to them. We should say to them, look, by repenting of your sin and putting your trust in Christ, you can have this never-ending grace and it comes to us in provision, empowerment, healing and cleansing. That's what we should be telling people. We should be telling people what John is telling us right here. Now look at verse 17 and 18. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Here, the Apostle John draws a contrast between law and grace. The law was given through Moses. Think of the Ten Commandments, right? Moses received the commandments on tablets of stone and delivered them to the people. Okay, so think of the Ten Commandments. Under those commandments, under the law... God demands righteousness from men. It's a demand. It's not an option. To all of humanity, those ten, ten Commandments declare to everyone what God demands, that He demands righteousness and righteous behavior from His creatures. Okay? So under the law, God demands righteousness from men, and He does it unapologetically. It's not an option. It's not something you can ponder. It's what He demands, okay? However, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And under grace, God gives righteousness to men, okay? So God demands it under the law, but God gives it through Christ, right? God literally, I mean, this is like the best news ever. God literally makes us righteous by applying the righteousness of Christ to our account when we believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Grace then achieves for us what the law could never achieve for us, righteousness and salvation. You know, the Scripture says the law can never save. No matter how much you obey the law, you can never be saved by it because you can never obey it rightly, and we certainly never attempt to obey it by faith. The fact is anyone who comes to Christ by grace through faith shall be counted as righteous, as a, a law-abiding citizen. And the law's demands and curses are lifted from that individual, from that person. But those who reject Christ remain under the law, under its demands, and under its curses. And the law will be their judge and testify against them on the day of judgment. So what is the Apostle John telling us here? He is telling us that under the first system, under the law, 
you've got the demand. And he is telling us in contrast, under the final system, the system of grace, which is in Christ, you've got Christ meeting those demands. That's what he's telling us here. He is contrasting law, which can never save, with Christ and the grace of Christ, which is the only way of salvation. But that's not all he does here. The apostle also draws a contrast between Moses and Christ. Moses, who was unable to see God because no man can see God and live, right? Exodus 33:20 made the law known. Jesus Christ, right? Because the law came through him. The commandments came through him. Jesus Christ, who is at the Father's side. What does that mean? What does the verse mean there where it says Jesus is at the Father's side? It means that he sees God all the time. It means that he was able to do what Moses dreamed of doing during his life but could not do. Christ did what the Father did. He was in the presence of God and not killed as Moses would be. Jesus Christ, who is at the Father's side, what did he make known? He made God known. He made the full truth of God known, okay, not just the law. Christ is, it says in Scripture, Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. So I want you to think of it like this, the contrast that John makes here. I want you to think of it like this. The law paints part of the picture. It illustrates God's attributes of holiness, of righteousness, and of justice. That's, in totality, all that the law does. It shows those attributes about God, and it demands righteousness from us. And yet, Jesus Christ paints the whole picture. He colors in the rest of the painting, right? The law only does part of it, but Jesus Christ paints the whole picture. Why? Because He illustrates the other attributes of God, like His mercy and His grace. He does, He is the fulfillment of the sacrificial system, which painted part of that picture. But Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, when He came, He painted in the full picture, and He showed, showed the, the full blast of God's mercy and grace. This is why it says of Christ that He is full of truth. He is the full revelation of who God is and, and of what God has provided for our righteousness and salvation. Christ himself said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. He also said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Why did John contrast the law with grace and Moses with Christ? I think he did it to show how Christ and the ministry and work of Christ are superior to that of Moses and the law. You have to understand, the Jews at this point were utterly obsessed with Moses and the law. I mean, they believed that Moses was like a savior to them, and he was a deliverer in a sense, but he's not Christ. But they held Moses up so high, it was so dangerous for them. And they also held the law up so high, that became dangerous to them and a stumbling block. They really believed that, man, if you trusted in Moses and you obeyed all the things that he said, you would be saved. That's what they believe. 
And I want you to understand something. It's not that Moses and the law are unimportant. Christ did not come to override and destroy them. He did not. They are important. The, the law points us to the reality of who we are and that we can't obey it, and it points us to Christ in a sense. Okay, so, so it's not that Moses and the law are unimportant and that Jesus did away with those things, but we must understand that they are not the end goal. Okay, Moses and the law are not the end goal, and that is what the Jewish mind thought. Boy, as long as we stick to those things, we're okay. They are not the end goal, just as John the Baptist is not the end goal. They are not salvation, just as John the Baptist is not the light. You see, that's John's point here. He was dealing with the disciples of John the Baptist who were still kind of worshiping under his system, and he's dealing with Jews who were worshiping under the system of Moses. He's trying to direct everyone's attention to Christ, who is the only light and only Savior. And you must understand that Moses and the law and, and, and John the Baptist and, and all of the prophets and all of Scripture ultimately point to Christ. That's the point. They point to Christ. Moses himself pointed to Christ. So I don't understand why anyone would settle for Moses or John the Baptist or anyone else. They all pointed to someone else. We must never settle for anyone or anything less than Christ because He alone is our righteousness. He alone is our salvation. Amen? Good. Look again at that last phrase. We're going to wrap it up. It says, He has made Him known. Christ came to make the Father known. Okay? Christ came to reveal the Father to creation in an unprecedented and in the most spectacular way of all time, in flesh. As Jesus said, if you see me, you see the Father. I and the Father am one. So Jesus Christ came. The eternal Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Why? to make the Father known, to shine light on who the Father is, upon what He demands, and upon what He has provided for sinners like us. That's why He came. Christ came to make the Father known. That is John's big point here. Why are we here? Why have we been saved? What is our purpose you know, Christians often wonder what their spiritual gifts are, and they want to figure out what they are so they can apply them. I'll tell you what, there is a universal thing right here for every believer, what every believer ought to be doing. Why are we here? Why do we exist? What is our mission? Well, Christ came to make the Father known. Our calling, our mission, our purpose, our ministry is to make Christ known. That's why we are here. Matthew 28, 19 through 20 says, and I, I cite it pretty regularly here at the church because I want us to be missional. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Those are people, disciples are people who love Jesus, who have received Jesus as Lord and Savior, who obey Jesus, who are trusting in Jesus. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, not just Palestine, Jerusalem, not just Modesto, all nations. And he says this, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And he says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Who is a disciple of Jesus Christ? 
according to this passage. It is one who has been baptized in the name of the Holy Trinity. It is one who obeys all that Christ commanded. You get the idea of fellowshipping and discipling other believers and teaching them what Christ taught and helping them understand that. This is what we are to do. We are to make Christ known by making disciples who love him, who worship him, and who multiply and make more disciples. That's why we are here. My challenge for you this week is to make Christ known. Preach the gospel to someone. Tell them about sin. But be gracious and merciful. Do it with a sober mind, remembering who you are, that you are a sinner saved by grace, and that you still wrestle with sin, that you still wrestle with temptation and these various things. <laughs> Don't be like Westboro Baptists and go around with ugly signs that say horrible things about people like God hates fags and things like that. That is not the way of John the Baptist. That is not our way of doing things. As I said, I'd like to follow. I would like to follow them around with a sign that says God hates hate, right? Because that is just nothing but hate speech. It is true that God hates sin, but God also loves sinners. I am an example of that. And God has sent his son, the word who became flesh, who dwelt among us to save sinners like you and I, homosexual, adulterer, drunkard, whatever your sin of choice is. So tell them about sin, but do it in a way where you are aware of your own sin. If you have to carry a mirror with you and hold it to the side so you can glance at it to remind yourself of who you are, do that as you talk with others about sin. And tell them about the Savior. Tell them about Jesus Christ, the God-man. Tell them about the righteousness and salvation that He alone provides. And tell them how they can acquire that righteousness and salvation in Him alone by grace through faith. That's what you did. That's how you came into those blessings and into that salvation and righteousness. Tell them what they must do. Help them understand that. Reason with them. And I would love for you to share your experience with me because I love to hear how God is working through our church. So if you go out and, and uh, engage and have one of these experiences. Or if you have in the past, email me or pull me aside after one of the services or before and tell me your story. I'd love to hear it. Okay?